Recovery Elevator, episode 26. I left the casino when it closed, and I plowed into the back of a parked truck at about 3 in the morning. And when I hit the back of the truck, it sobered me up just enough to, like, drive out of that. Welcome to the Recovery Elevator Podcast. My name is Paul. Thank you so much for joining us. Episode 26. That is a halfway milestone marker to my goal that I made publicly on the microphone for the whole world to hear. I will produce 52 podcast episodes for Recovery Elevator that will come out every Monday at 6 a.m. And so far, and so far I've delivered 26 times in a row, which has not been easy. According to my Recovery Elevator sobriety app on my iPhone, available on iTunes and the Google Play Store, I've been sober for 11 months, one week, and two days. Before we get too far in episode 26, let's hear it from our sponsor, Sober Nation. Sober Nation is the largest online recovery community and treatment resource center. They provide treatment resources to those struggling with addiction as well to family members who are caught in the crossfire. On top of that, Sober Nation is a huge community of good people who share their experience with each other. They have informative content, recent recovery and addiction news, as well as an entire clothing line, which helps expand the culture of recovery. They can be found at www.SoberNation.com. Once again, that's SoberNation.com. On today's podcast episode, I've got Ian, and he's going to share how he has successfully made it to 18 months sober. Nice job, Ian. After that, I've got Diane, and she is the fourth part of the four-part series called The Other Side. Diane is the sister of an alcoholic. She is the daughter of two alcoholics, and she's also the mother of an alcoholic. That is a triple whammy in my book. Her life not only has been a little bit affected by alcohol and alcoholics, the world has been rocked. But before we get into that, I'd like to talk about my fantasy football draft that I just got back from about three hours ago that took place in Las Vegas, Nevada. You can probably hear it in my voice. Even being sober in Vegas, it kicks your ass. And I know you're thinking, fantasy football? What the hell is that? Well, it's eight of us. We all draft fictitious teams, spend way too much time researching our teams and our draft strategies. And I ended up picking Russell Wilson in the first round with my very first draft pick. You can't see it, but my fingers are crossed. He better have a good season this year because I took a lot of flack for that pick. As I approach one year of sobriety, I recall last year's fantasy football draft, which took place in Denver, Colorado. Last year's fantasy football draft was a fiasco to say the least. It started off by me missing my flight to go to Denver. Why? Because I was hungover. And I had this grandiose plan to not drink for the draft because I was right in the middle of my struggle. I couldn't stop drinking for more than three or four days. But I had this plan to go to my fantasy football draft with seven of my best friends where nothing wrong with it. They're normal drinkers. Their goal is to consume a hell of a lot of alcohol. And there's nothing wrong with that. But after the draft last year, we went to a Houston Texans Denver Broncos preseason football game. I was walking up the stairs to the very last row in the entire stadium. I literally was a mile high in the mile high stadium and I felt it in my stomach while I was walking up those stairs. Alcoholics out there, you know that feeling. Maybe you have it right now. It's the feeling that unless you do something drastic, like completely removing yourself from the situation, you're going to drink. And that's the feeling that I had. I think I made it for one drive or about five minutes into the game. Peyton Manning threw a couple incomplete passes and I said to the guy next to me, hey, I got to go to the bathroom. So I walk down this tower of stairs, cruise right past the bathroom, walk out the stadium, sit down on a concrete bench, whip out my cell phone, and I draft a terrifying text message. I tell everybody, hey guys, I am really struggling with alcohol. I cannot be in that stadium right now. And I sent it. I sent it and I put my head down and I was crushed. This was the best weekend of the entire year that I look forward to. And it was miserable. In fact, I was in hell. I walked back all the way to downtown Denver, like two miles by myself, where I could hear the roar in the background of the stadium, knowing that my seven best friends, they're having a great time doing what you're supposed to be doing at a guy's weekend at a fantasy football draft, drinking. So I got back to the hotel room with a plan that I am not going to drink because I got this. And I did pretty good with that plan for a while. And then like the movie Flight with Denzel Washington in his hotel room, there was like 12 beers left, all warm and all were consumed. This year's draft was a hell of a lot different. Number one, I had been sober for over 11 months before I went to the draft. But the most important part, 
I had created accountability. With that text message, everybody in the draft knew what was going on with me. They all know I'm an alcoholic. You might think, why was that text message so frightening? Well, those are my seven best friends. I thought the instant that I hit send on my cell phone, that my seven best friends, including my brother, those relationships were gonna change instantly. And we no longer, we're gonna be best friends. The thought of getting your entire world rocked just after sending one text message, it's terrifying. But I knew that's what I had to do. And good news is, they are real friends. My brother, he's always been on board. Thank you, Mark. Everybody else, thank you so much for being there and making this last fantasy football draft good. I say good because it wasn't great. I recorded a video day three at the MGM Grand Pool before, let's just say, the festivities started. Put the video on the Recovery Elevator Facebook page, and I also make a longer video for the Recovery Elevator private accountability group. I'm walking around, I'm cocky, I'm like, day one in the books, day two in the books, can't take that away from me. Day three, don't know yet, but I'm pretty sure it's in the books. You know, and I uploaded those videos to Facebook and I was feeling great. But day three in the lion's den, when you're surrounded with just gallons of free flowing liquor, actually not free, it was very expensive for them, and it's 105 degrees, it kind of got hard, but I wasn't hiding it. After about two hours at the pool, I said, hey guys, I gotta go get some work done, which was true. It was kind of true. I did fire off some emails, just like Russell Wilson's gonna fire off a bunch of touchdown passes this year. I made some calls, but really, it was a situation that I needed to take myself out of. And next year, I hope we go somewhere else besides Las Vegas for the fantasy football draft. And if we do, I'm not gonna be at a pool party till 4 a.m. at the Encore win because that's a little too far outside my comfort zone. To tell you the truth, my expectations were set too high for my fantasy football draft. I thought I could go in there with 11 months of sobriety and be right next to the boys. It was tough to come back today on the airplane humbled because it wasn't that fun. There were parts of it that were awesome, but overall, it wasn't the best time. But thank you, Recovery Elevator Nation, for being there for me. I read the Facebook post on the Private Accountability Facebook page, read all the posts on the Facebook page. You guys helped me stay sober. So thank you for that. Now, let's hear from Ian. Recovery Elevator, I'd like to welcome Ian to the podcast. Ian, how are you? I'm doing good, Paul. Fantastic. Now, listeners, Ian has 18 months of sobriety. Well, he got 18 months of sobriety on July 19th. And Ian, talk to me about this sobriety date. Did you just decide to quit on that date or did you have some sobriety before that? Yeah, Paul, I did. I got into recovery about three years ago. Um, I was 23 years old. You know, I just came to the end of the road for me and I decided to put myself into rehab back in 2012. I went to rehab in Florida, 36 days, and then I came back to Bozeman, got involved in recovery here in Bozeman, and I stayed sober for a year. And then I guess I didn't, I needed to learn some more about my powerlessness with drugs and alcohol. And after a year of sobriety, I uh, ended up relapsed. I was eating Xanax that was not prescribed to me and I started smoking pot again. I was out for, I don't know, two, maybe three weeks. Yeah, just, I don't know, that year of sobriety, I learned a lot from it and I knew that I wasn't living how I wanted to be living again and I came back into my recovery group here in Bozeman and just owned up to myself and started a new sobriety date because I knew that I wasn't living sober anymore and it's not what I wanted to be doing. So, yeah. Ian, talk to me about your elevator. You said at age 23, you decided to go to rehab in Florida in 2012. Talk to me about your drinking habits and when you decided to get off the elevator and how bad did it really get? Mm -hmm. So I started drinking at a pretty young age. I don't know if if geographics has anything to do with it, but I I was born and raised here in Montana. And I uh, just from you know, my personal view of growing up in Montana, I think that drinking is very acceptable. You know, I remember being really young, maybe five or six at like family weddings and having sips off a beer, not getting drunk or anything, but like tasting alcohol. And just, I don't know, I just noticed that, you know, drinking was very acceptable in our culture here in Montana. And so, you know, the first time I really experienced alcohol, I was about 12 years old and I got, I got blackout drunk 
I don't remember the whole experience. I remember I was crying and throwing up and just, you know, being a mess. And right now, as we're talking about it, that doesn't sound like fun, but it didn't deter me away from experiencing it again and just started drinking to fit in with everybody. You know, I was 12 years old. I'm in about sixth grade, so I wasn't drinking heavily or anything at that point, but I did get my first minor possession. Uh, when I was about 12 or 13, I had stole some alcohol from my parents and sold it to another kid that I went to school with. And I sold it to him on the bus and the camera had caught that. And then I got into some trouble then. And then my drinking kind of progressed as I got into, you know, junior high and high school. There were keg parties out in the woods with bonfires. And just, I think I was mainly then drinking on the weekends and more of a sociable thing. But, it, you know, every time I did drink, I did end up blacking out or getting completely wasted and inebriated. And that went on for a while. I also got introduced to the the shady side of things and, and the drug culture and, you know, started selling marijuana at a, at a really young age. By about 15, I was, you know, selling marijuana. And I think that drugs and alcohol really go hand in hand. And I think that our society sometimes likes to separate the two and, you know, alcohol and drugs but to me they're they're the same thing you know they just each one has its own name and title but they're there to try and make us feel different because i don't like the way i'm feeling so you know i i try to go for a quick fix to feel better you know drinking escalated i i was about 18 when I wrecked my first vehicle um due to drinking and driving and luckily i didn't get hurt and no one else got hurt. Um, I had been drinking at a casino. I had a fake ID at the time, and I left the casino when it closed, and I plowed into the back of a parked truck at about 3 in the morning. And when I hit the back of the truck, it sobered me up just enough to, like, drive out of that and then uh, continue on my way to hide my vehicle. And, and there were no uh, real repercussions from that. I continued to drink from there. And in the midst of all of that, right around 18, 19, I got introduced to some other, I got introduced to the pharmaceuticals and uh, went down pills and opiates and that whole path and ended up having sort of a long love affair with those. And no matter what the consequences were, nothing seemed to make me want to change. You know, I, I had been arrested a few times for distribution of drugs and even facing quite a big hefty jail term and things like that nothing ever you know okay I would get in trouble I'd quit doing drugs because they could test for that so I would drink a lot I would drink copious amounts you know while I was on probation and and try and cheat the system and and stuff like that so it was just trading one for the other, back and forth, and it just seemed to go on, you know, for a long time. And, yeah, the the years went by, and I remember I got introduced to AA, Alcoholics Anonymous, at a young age, probably about 16, due to getting into some trouble drinking, you know, minor possession of alcohol, and then they'd have to go to AA. So I knew a little bit about recovery and a little bit about AA, but not much at all. And, you know, I wasn't ready to change or do anything about it. And then at 19, I was introduced. I started going to AA again to look good for a judge when I had gotten into some trouble for distribution of drugs. And I didn't stick around that time either. So from 19 to 23, there was a lot more, a lot more uh, run-ins with the law. Just pretty catastrophic things that would most normal people, or I don't, I don't exactly know what I mean by normal people, but most people when they get into a lot of trouble can change their behavior. And I couldn't, I couldn't change my behavior. I would get into a lot of trouble and just keep doing the same thing. So by 23, I was kind of at a crossroads in my life where I had started having feelings about the, maybe the drugs and the alcohol were having a, having an effect on my life, but I didn't know what to do about it. And I was back home in Whitefish. I grew up in Whitefish, Montana, and I was back up there. Let's see, it was November of 2012. I was kind of on a, a big-time runner, and I didn't know it was going to be my last then. But uh, I just had this voice that was going off in my head for, I don't know, 
like five days straight and I couldn't get it to stop, you know, I'd try and drink or use or get it to go away and nothing seemed to work anymore. And what I kept hearing was a change is coming in my life, whether I decide to make it or not, the inevitable, a change was coming. And after five days of that, I just, I guess, surrendered to myself or, or the voice that was going on in my head. And I didn't know what to do, so I ended up showing up at my mom's house at like 2 in the morning, uh, one morning, drunk and on other substances. But I just didn't know what to do. So, I, you know, I went to my mom and I, I got honest with her and I asked her for help. I said, look, mom, I don't know what I'm doing. I, I don't know what to do. And I stayed the night with her. And the next morning, she had found a rehab in Florida. It was called G&G Holistic Treatment, and that was like the 18th of November. And November 19th of 2012, I entered my first inpatient rehab facility. I did detox for six days. I uh, entered the rehab program and started my path to recovery. Ian, before you went into that rehab facility in Florida in 2012, did you ever try to control your drinking or, or maybe set rules with your drinking and drugging? Yeah, there was numerous occasions like that. For instance, you know, when I would get in trouble, I would put the drugs down and just drink. Or, you know, I, I had a girlfriend at the time and when we were drinking, she would tell me no hard alcohol and try to control that I didn't drink hard alcohol, you know, just beer, which never seemed to work anyway. I would end up, you know, drinking whiskey or something hard like that. But, you know, I would hide things around the house for myself or I would leave my pot or other drugs at home when I was at work or working a job and try not to do anything until I got home from work. But none of that seemed to work. I would always start out the best intentions, but, you know, it would always end up I would be using before work when I, you know, when I woke up first thing in the morning at lunch break or even, you know, before lunch break, so I could sneak off just for a second to get a hit or take a snort or, you know, something. So it seemed like I I would start out with those intentions to control it and be like, oh, it's not an issue. I'm just doing it sociably or I'm just experimenting. And, and then time after time, I would, after a while, I'd find myself where I was just, you know, using every day, morning, noon, and night. Ian, what was it like when you first stopped drinking? So I guess you, when you first went to rehab, you did six days of detox. You know, tell listeners what they can expect when they quit drinking in the first month, the first two months, the first year. Talk to me about that transfer, transformation. Okay. Yeah. Well, when I had a layover in Colorado on my way and I ended up sitting in the bar there and drinking because <laughs> I knew I kind of was like, well, this is the end. And, and I still hadn't stopped yet, but I was drinking and then we get to detox and they had to taper. They had to use um, prescribed drugs to taper me off of everything because I wasn't, you know, I was coming off all different kinds of substances, alcohol, cocaine, opiates. So they had to do a detox and they used prescribed drugs to slowly bring me off because you can, if you don't do it properly and, and you've been using substances for a long time, such as I had been doing, you can actually harm your body more by just trying to kick cold turkey and, and detox without help. I... You know, I really didn't know what I was in for, and, and once I got there, it didn't seem so bad, but by day two or three, I, I, I suffered from restless leg syndrome severely. I had to end up pacing this hallway because if I sat still, my legs would hurt too bad. Just a severe pain in my legs, so I would just constantly keep walking, and then it wouldn't hurt as bad. I remember just sweating a lot and laying in this room like we all had our own private bedroom, so you could go in there and just, you know, sweat it out. It's funny because during this time in the early process of, of me being in rehab, I still thought, you know, I was like, oh, I, I had put myself into rehab. In my mind, it was more for the drugs and the, and the opiates that I couldn't get off of and things like that. And then as time progressed and I got a little bit of clarity, a few days pass and I don't have chemicals in my body and a few more days pass and I don't have those chemicals in my body. You know, my mind starts to clear a little bit. And then the things that they're teaching us in there, you know, and I thought that when I had finished 
uh, rehab that I would, you know, have a beer on the airplane flying back home or something. And the longer I stayed and learned um, about my recovery is that I'm a poly substance abuser. So whether it's alcohol, it's all the same to me. I use whatever it is to the extent, to its fullest extent, you know, whether I'm drinking, drugging, you know, gambling, whatever it is, probably about halfway in my 30 day stay, I realized I couldn't, I couldn't start drinking again. And I started changing my mind and really trying to immerse myself into the recovery program that they had, you know, I had given up and I didn't know what I was doing. So I really tried to stay teachable and and didn't, you know, didn't act like I knew everything because I really knew nothing at that point in time. It's just funny looking back on it now, you know, that all of that going on and I thought that I'd be able to have a drink or just do one thing when I got out. But really, when I went there, I learned that I have an issue with all of it. Ian, talk to me about the physical transformation that you've experienced in the last two, three years, even though you you had to reset your sobriety date. In Recovery Elevator, I have met only a handful of their interviewees on the show. I met Ian, and I believe it was in 2012. I saw you, and I didn't know you very well, but we were both doing beak room yoga, which is just a terrible idea in general, in my opinion. (laughs) And Ian, man, we both looked like beached whales, just like rolling around in our own sweat. Like I have lost about 20 pounds in sobriety. Man, you have probably lost like 40. Am am I undershooting that mark? Yeah. uh, No, it was 35 pounds. Um, When I left, when I exited rehab uh, December 23rd of 2012, when I left rehab, I was 235 pounds, and I'm down to about 195 right now. Last year, I'd gotten a little lower than that, but I think around 190 to 200 is a healthier weight for me because I'm, I'm, I'm a bigger guy. and You know, I'm like 6'1 or 6'2, so to be 180 is kind of, I think, a little too skinny for me. You look like a um, nimble gazelle right now. And you said you just (laughs) ran a half marathon in April? How'd that go? Yeah, that went really well. Yeah. Yeah, getting out of out of rehab and and what early recovery looks like and, and, and what has happened. I need to stay active. In early recovery for me, I would just show up to a lot of AA meetings or support meetings or, you know, I was even seeing a therapist for you know, once a month for extra to talk to, somebody to talk to, to open and be honest with. And I was still smoking cigarettes then pretty heavily when I first got out of out of treatment. But, you know, a lot of people are like, well, you've gotten rid of like most of the really bad things in your life. You'll quit cigarettes when you're ready. I just immersed myself in, in recovery here in Bozeman. And, and then I started doing physical things. I, I got a membership to the gym and I started working out. I started turning some of that energy of, you know, I used to be high and drinking all the time. I, I took that energy in and put it into like working out and running and, and lifting weights and, and just trying to be healthy. And it's been almost a year now since I quit smoking cigarettes. And that's been a blessing too. Yeah. And then I, last year I really got into running. A friend of mine in recovery runs ultra marathons, which was like hundred mile races. And so he had been training with me and, and teaching me some things about running. And I really just took off with the running. I, I get a natural high from it. It helps me. I just feel really good when I get done with a run or even in the midst of the run, I just get this really buzzing feeling that I don't quite know how to describe. It's just like this humming sensation in my head and it feels really good. That's one thing that I've learned for myself in recovery is that I need to keep growing. If I get stale or stagnated, that can lead to bad things if I do it for too long, you know, if I'm not staying active, not trying to help other people in recovery or, you know, just trying to be of service to other people, really, whether it's in recovery or not, just trying to be as helpful as I can out there and, and be open to to hear the call of who needs help and what's going on. Yeah, I hope I answered that question for you. No, you definitely did. And Ian, we have reached the rapid fire round. If you could answer these questions within 30 to 60 seconds, that would be great. Are you ready? Yep. Number one, what was your worst memory from drinking? When I wrecked, uh, my mom had gotten me a, a car for high school graduation, and I totaled it when I was drinking. I was blackout drunk, and I totaled the car and ruined it, and it was a really nice car. How long after graduation? Oh, how long? It was a year after high school graduation. I had the car for a year. Oh. 
Wow, that's yeah. brutal. Number two, what's your plan in sobriety moving forward starting today? Starting today, well, I just actually landed a new job with a company called Shadow Hearth and Home, and I'm learning how to do natural gas, propane, and wood stove uh, installs and homes. I want to work with them as long as I can to learn, gain that experience and knowledge, and that can go anywhere, but my real goal is I want to go to school for wind technology. Um, I found a school in Broomfield, Colorado called Redstone College. And I was actually enrolled to start school there in 2013, but because of some wreckage from my past that I have to clean up and I'm in the process of cleaning up, I wasn't able to do that. But next August, uh, when school starts there again, I hope to be in, be enrolled there. So, And in regards to sobriety, what's the best advice you've ever received? The best advice I heard was when I was in rehab in Florida, and I'll never forget it, and they said that you never have to hit rock bottom. Just set the shovel down and quit digging. Ah, uh, that is so true. But only a couple of us listen to that golden nugget. Huh. And Ian, last question. What parting piece of guidance, maybe you just said it, can you give to listeners who are in early recovery or are thinking about quitting drinking? Well, every it's everybody's own personal journey. And if you're having thoughts of quitting, there's probably issues going on because I never thought that I would be sitting here sober today or that I would have been asked to do an interview on Recovery Elevator. If you get into recovery and, and you know, you're having problems and you slip and you use again or go back out, just keep trying. Just, you know, just keep coming back and just keep trying. It's like riding a bike, you know. And life, life can be a crash course. So just if you fall off, you know, just get back up and keep trying. Ian, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me, Paul. There were some really great takeaways from what Ian had to share. And I personally will be implementing a lot of those core values into my sobriety. Next up, let's hear from Diane. Recovery Elevator, I'm here with Diane, who is on part four of the four-part series called The Other Side. Now, when I was brainstorming for this four-part series called The Other Side, I said, I need a daughter or a son of an alcoholic. I need a husband or a wife or a spouse of an alcoholic. I need a friend of an alcoholic. Well, I got the mother load, pun intended, because you are a mother of an alcoholic as well as a sister of an alcoholic. And, and Diane, how are you today? I'm good. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm gonna, just going to talk about the email that you sent me and really the first line in it. It said your brother had recently passed away at age 47 of alcoholism. Your parents were alcoholic, and you had made a choice not to go down that road, you and your husband. However, it looks like this genetic disease did reach your son. So I'm just going to let, it, let you take it from here for a little bit and tell us a little bit about your background, your brother who passed away, your parents, and your son. I know that's a lot, but uh, I'm interested to hear it. So... I first, you know, realized alcohol was a problem in my family when I was a teenager and it was my father who who was an alcoholic at that time and you know he was never um nasty or violent or anything like that and he he's always been a high functioning alcoholic. I mean, he you know always was employed and did really well and all those kinds of, you know, things. So from the outside, you know, things looked fine, but I just could see that he wasn't always in control. Um, his personality was different when he had been drinking. And so that, that really bothered me. And, um, and then sort of my mother eventually, you know, kind of followed, followed along just through the insidious way that if you just drink alcohol every day, then you just keep drinking more and more. And then after a while you have to keep drinking and it just keeps growing and growing and, so I always just looked at that and said, you know, I'm, I'm never going to do that. I never want to, I just never wanted that for my children to feel how I felt when my dad was drunk. And I would say that to my brother even. And I do remember that he wasn't um, saying it as back to me as strongly as I was saying it to him, but we did talk about how we felt about it and, and, you know, we weren't happy about it. And then we, we were really close once we were teenagers and then we kind of, you know, as young adults, we went our different ways and, um, he eventually came back 
uh, to the East Coast from the West Coast, and I uh, had kids, and I had kids, and we started to see, you know, more and more of each other, and, you know, we were close again, um, and then a few years ago, um, I got a call, and it was that he was, well, he was going through a divorce at that time, and I got a call that he had collapsed at work, and he was in the hospital, and since he didn't have a wife at that point, I mean, I was definitely his closest you know, the person closest to him. So I I went out there and, and what I found was that, um, he had collapsed, um, at work because he had, well, he was in trouble at work because of his drinking. And, um, and so he'd had a stressful morning after he tried not to drink all weekend and he passed out while he was making a mandated call to seek treatment for himself and um, they ended up rushing him to the hospital. And then I had no idea what was going on. And he didn't tell me that that was what was happening. I think it was one of the nurse's aides that said to me when he was acting really crazy, like, you know what this is, right? This is the DTs. And I was like, you know, what? So that's how I found out about my brother. And, and that was, I guess, almost three years ago that that happened. So he did get sober. After that, he was sober for a little bit, but, and I guess he went back to work and anyway, he eventually went back to drinking. Um, he was hospitalized again. Uh, he lost his job and that was a, you know, big stressor. And, uh, at that point he kind of went off the deep end. Um, I'm not going to get into the details on that, but he ended up back in the hospital and it came out that he had started drinking again. And so it was just sort of this thing where he was kind of off again, on again with the drinking, but he was really, I mean, he was really bad. Like, like I'm older than I was older than him. And um, I know in the hospital, people thought I was much younger than him because he, his body was just ravaged. I mean, he just looked, he looked like he was 60. You know, I tried, um, I don't know. He would pretend like he wasn't drinking. I would kind of try to confront him or his ex-wife would try to confront him. And he would just say he was fine. And the last time uh, he kind of came clean about it was this past February. And he was really bad. And he, I don't know if his, I can't remember how I found out if he told me or my ex-sister-in-law told me, but anyway, we had a phone conversation and he was really ashamed and crying and wanting to figure out how to get sober. But, um, he, he had two daughters he didn't want to be separated from. So he, he didn't really want to go into inpatient. And I, I mean, I think that's, that's absolutely what he needed, but he didn't have anybody to kind of force the issue because he lived alone and, it's hard when you're so alone. I mean, there's a lot of things that killed him. And one of the things was, um, he, he was so socially isolated and he felt that he knew best and he felt that he could handle it on his own, even though, you know, he's having major health problems from that. So, so he ended up um, passing away due to a gastrointestinal bleed and other other associated problems, you know, with alcohol. Diane, when did he pass away? In April. Oh, wow. I, this is very recent. Very recent. Yeah, absolutely. It's been a very terrible year. <laughs> oh, I'm so sorry to hear about that. Oh. And you said a couple things in there. I'm quoting what you said. You said, he didn't tell me. And another thing you said, it came out that he started drinking again. That's what we do. We keep you guys in the dark. And what was it like when you found out? Because you said when you guys grew up together, your parents or your dad was an alcoholic and you would talk about it. And you, you said your brother wasn't quite as serious, but he knew you know, where this train was headed. How frustrating or how hard was that to see your brother go through that when he knew what your dad was going through or what was going to happen? It was obvious. I mean, one of the, the very worst things to go through because, you know, and I didn't, you know, I think one of the things about your podcast is that hearing um, the voices and the words of people who have been addicted to alcohol and hearing it in their own words and your story in your own words. I mean, I've read, read memoirs. I've talked to a lot of people, you know, I've done a lot of, of things, but that's really helped me understand it better. But I think that, um, 
Oh my gosh, I lost my train of thought. What was your, what was the specific question? The last thing you asked me. Just how hard is it to watch the lo- to watch a loved one, yes. your brother, basically have the wheels slowly come off in life and, and just self implode? Yeah. Basically, I mean, you're like outside looking in a window, not able to help. How hard is that? Yeah, I mean, excruciating. And also because, and this, and that's where the whole thing about the podcast, like, you know, he wasn't himself and it, it wasn't really him, but I didn't, I don't think I understood at that time as much as I do now, not that I'm an expert, but just the idea that, you know, the addicted brain is just not even the same person as, you know, the person that was in there to begin with or the the sober person that that's in there. And so it just was so hard to communicate with him because he was, you know, he was lying and it just was, it was awful. I mean, I, I really, I wasn't as supportive towards the end as I should have been because it was just so hard to force yourself to, to make the contact to try to help because it was just, you knew you weren't talking about the truth and it's just, it's, it's horrible. It's horrible. And we, we lived about five hours apart. So we weren't see, hadn't seen much of him. We would talk on the phone, so it's just excruciating. And, but he didn't know. I think he, I don't think he thought he was going to die. I don't think that he did. I mean, otherwise, I just think he would have done more to save himself. But I don't know. I mean, maybe not. But I don't think he knew he was going to die. Diane, the perplexing part about that is, you said he was lying to you. But he was being lied to by his own voice, which is his addiction. And you betcha that his addiction was telling him, hey, you know, we can keep drinking. We're not going to die. We're going to be just fine. And so I'm not defending your brother here, but him lying to you was him basically repeating his own words or his own addiction in his head to you. Gosh, it it hurts my heart to hear that. Yeah. And I think that the way you put it is, is a really good that's really helps me understand it even better. Yeah. Well, let's switch gears a little bit and let's talk about your son. He's 19 years old and he's been sober about five weeks. He went to rehab. Talk to me about that process. Again, how hard is it to watch your son go through the same things that your brother went through? And he's young. So tell me about that. Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes I can't even believe that this is really my life. But um yeah, so he um he basically kind of flunked out of college, um his first year of college and came home and you know was kind of on board that he probably needed to take a break from substances and um you know kind of agreed agreed to do that. And um Long story short, he started in um, intensive outpatient treatment, and he was going and he was participating, but he was also um, continuing to his. It, the first thing he started with was um, pot. He started smoking pot when he was in ninth grade, and and he added the drinking. I don't know, sometime in high school, definitely senior year, and then I think uh, he was really doing both very heavily um, at college. So he was saying, he was sort of pretending, I think, you know, he was, he was sort of engaging with the treatment, but he was also when he would see his friends using. And um, we caught him a couple of times. And the first time we caught him, the P, his, his therapists were saying, you know, he really needs to go to rehab and you need to make him go to rehab. And he really didn't want to go. And they were telling us, you need to tell him you know, that he can't live there anymore if he doesn't go. And I just wasn't, we weren't ready to do that the first go round. But then, you know, the more we were researching and talking to other parents and we, you know, we went to an Al-Anon meeting, you know, we did a bunch of things uh, just to try to, and, and just, you know, the support of these professionals also saying, you know, right now you, you actually can force the issue because he's, he's completely monetarily dependent on you. And so you have a big, you know, a big motivator. So, so I figured, you know, if this is going to continue to be a problem, it'll continue to be a problem. And, and I, I caught him again and I was ready to, to give him the ultimatum at, um, either rehab or, or leave our home. And um, he actually left our home 
for a weekend. And he had a court date, though, for an underage drinking citation at college. And uh, that was happening the following Monday. So he ended up coming home, and we went up there for that. And his lawyer actually really helped kind of push him towards making the choice to go to rehab. His plan at that point, I think, was to leave our home again. And he, we found out later he'd been staying with, you know, at a friend's house. So the lawyer basically, the lawyer basically said to my son, you, if, you know, if you're willing to do rehab, I think that, that the court would look, you know, kindly on that. But it, but if you say you're doing it to me now and I tell the judge that, then you really have to go. And, and he did end up agreeing to do that. So very angry about it, but he, but he did agree. And then he did follow through when we came home and I said, okay, you know, you said you were going to do this and now, you know, I'm going to make the calls. And, and so he agreed to go. So he wasn't happy about it, but he, he did go into rehab. How long was your son in rehab for? He ended up staying like the full 30 days. Talk to me about the progression, the, tr- you know, the, the change that you've seen in your son after he came out of rehab, you know, before he went, and, and what is he like now? Yeah, I mean, he, and I should say, you know, one thing about my son is that he, he started having issues with anxiety in middle school that was pretty significant, and um, I know that that's one of the reasons that, you know, he, he sought out um, the substances and we had tried a lot of things to help him and nothing really seemed to help him feel better. I mean, he would get better and then he would get worse. And, and I didn't, so when he went into rehab, I, I sort of, sort of hoped that was the problem because it was, you know, seemed like a viable option. But then we tried so many other things that I was kind of like, you know, maybe this isn't it either. But anyway, so, so he got there, you know, and he, um, he actually ended up not having to go through detox because he wasn't using at a level at that point that was high enough that, that he would need that. But he, and he was angry. Um, he refused to actually let us be a part of treatment for, for a while. Um, he wouldn't call us. And, and the, the, so the thing he was really engaging with was individual treatment with his therapist. And, you know, through that, she, his therapist was able to, um, sort of bring him around to be more engaged with group. A really important thing that happened was we all, um, my son has a younger brother and we all wrote what are called cost letters, um, which is where you family members write about how the addiction has impacted them. So the three of us each wrote a letter and that, you know, my son was, read those or had them read, I guess, I don't know exactly how they did it, but they did it in group. And um, so he, then he got feedback about that. And so it was kind of a reality check for him about that he, that this was, you know, that he wasn't the only person that this was impacting. And so that, you know, definitely made an impact, you know, his, just his therapist and the people there. I mean, we were really happy with this facility. They, they just, I mean, they, they, they really knew what they were doing and, how they advised us, what we needed to do. We followed their recommendations. And and so one of the things that we decided was that he really shouldn't come home because, you know, he's home for the summer from college. And, you know, his whole high school life was really about smoking pot and drinking. And so that's his peer group here. And we just felt like, you know, he, he needed to get away from them. And then also he's had a real, really hard time becoming independent, even with sort of basic daily tasks like, you know, getting up, you know, what am I going to do today? I have things I need to do. Let me make a list. Let me work down my list. Let me, you know, how do these little goals relate to bigger goals? You know, he just was pretty much avoiding everything. So I just knew if he came home, it would, instead of him being able to continue to grow and try to develop these skills that he needs as an adult, it could quickly devolve into me nagging him and, you know, arguing back and forth and just take, instead of it being about his growth, that it would be about his, you know, our annoyance with each other, his, his annoyance with me. And, and, you know, I have to say that, you know, my son is a incredibly bright, personable, polite, funny. I mean, when, when he chooses to spend time with me, he's just, he's just a wonderful companion. Like he's just, he's a great person, but it's hard for him to be that person at home. 
under all the scrutiny of, you know, what time did you get up? What did you get done? To, you know, all those kinds of things. So we, we ended up telling him that he, he couldn't come home, that he needed to go into a sober living environment. And again, you know, he was angry and upset, but he was able to work through that, you know, with all the support him being in rehab with all these professionals and then the staff there and then his peers, you know, to get feedback on everything from them and, and for them to be the ones saying things to him instead of just us and like one therapist or something, you know, he had this whole like community of people that was giving him feedback and he was giving them feedback and, you know, he was learning and growing. And so he, he pretty quickly recovered from that and, and agreed to go into sober living. And he actually um, decided to go in a different part of the country, which made it a little more palatable and interesting. So now he's down there and he's, you know, continuing to explore a sober lifestyle and learn more about addiction and um, learn more, more about how to cope with his problems in a more adaptive way. So he's been sober for five weeks, pretty much case closed. He's cured. He's going to be happy for the rest of his life. Am I right? <laughs> oh, no, no. I, you know, I think, I mean, I, what I, what I've learned from listening to your podcast and other, you know, other things that I've done to try to educate myself to understand this better is, you know, I just think relapse is such a big, a big part of recovery. And I think, I think for somebody who's so young also, I think that I think it's really tough to say, you know, that that he'll never he'll never take another drink. He'll never he'll never use another substance. I think you're smart to be aware and open to that idea because it is part of a lot of people's journey. And Diane, all of us as alcoholics, we are extremely selfish. In fact, I've been selfish. I got your email and I was like, oh, I want to have Diane on my podcast. I want her to explain to my listeners, right? But I want to shift gears and talk about you. I want you to tell us how you are feeling and talk to the alcoholics and let us know how we affected you and how hard it is and how you are doing. I mean, it's been hard. I've had a hard time. I've had a hard time for the last five years um, between my brother and my son. And, you know, the whole thing of like control and trying to control someone else's behavior and, you know, try to, you know, stay up and make sure my son's sober when he comes home and drug test him and, you know, do all this stuff uh, to try to control his behavior. And then while at the same time, you know, I was enabling him by running, rushing in and, fixing his problems because I, you know, I was, I was fearful that if things got too bad for him, that he might try to harm himself. And so I was really like a crazy person for, for a long time. And, and I've, for me personally, I mean, I, I mean, I, I you know, I miss days of work cause I, you know, I would be crying and, you know, my eyes would be so red. I couldn't go to work. I, you know, I, I, I was just a mess. And slowly over time though, I started to come to realizations like one of them was um, I have to, you know, I, cause I would just like get into arguments with him or I would say hurtful things, you know, things that I feel really bad about now in my anger and in my upset and in my not understanding the situation and what would help. And so initially I learned to control myself and my responses but I was still very unhappy and things felt very out of control. And then, then I learned, then I started to realize, you know, I can't tie my whole, you know, cause it's your child. So it's, so it's really hard to like be like, my child's really doing horrible, but I need to be okay. Like I need to be okay for me. Like it's hard to say that and not feel like a bad person or, or that you don't care enough or whatever. But I did kind of come to the realization after a couple of years and like maybe when he was, the end of his sophomore year, like, you know, you don't have control over what he's doing. And so if you just can only be happy if he's doing well, that's, that's really, you, you know, you're really, you're, you could be in for a very, you know, the rest of your life could really be terrible because, mm -hmm. because of this. So, so I slowly learned to like, okay, I have to take care of myself. I have to, I have to find a way, my own ways of coping, not using alcohol or any type of drug, and then the other pro, you know, so, so slowly as we're going through, you know, I'm learning and my husband's learning things. Um, but an, another big thing is, you know, that the enabling, 
you know, the things that I was rushing in to, to help him with, I had to learn to stop doing that. So I've grown so much by just trying to take care of myself has, has kind of prepared me to be able to be a better parent to him to, you know, for my coping to be better and, and all those kinds of things. We expect you guys to be omniscient and, and just have like these inspector gadget devices to read between the lines. And we get mad at you because you don't know what's going on. It, it, Diane, it sounds like what your brother, your dad and your son and myself representing all the alcoholics, what we've put you through has not been fair. And I would like to just take this time to apologize to you on behalf of all the alcoholics out there, Diane, because you did not deserve to be put through this by us. So I apologize. <laughs> and, and before we go, one last question. What parting piece of guidance can you give to someone who's in a similar situation, a normal drinker, but they have a loved one, a son, a spouse, a sister, a parent who's an alcoholic? Educating yourself is important. And I think the things that have helped us the most are talking to other parents. For us, since it's our child is, you know, but that, you know, that's the person that we've, you know, been in this with the longest. Um, To hear what they say and get their take on things and what they've learned. And then I think listening to professionals, like bringing professionals in and you know, they tell you to do things that you just don't think you can do, that you just don't want to do. And I think sometimes sort of like this similar for an alcoholic has to get so bad before they are willing to seek change. I think that had to happen for my husband and I too, in a way. It had to get so bad before we were really ready to to do what we needed to do on our end as parents. I think being engaged with other people who can help you and and following what their professionals are telling you if if they're good professionals that you've found, you know, through other people who who know, you know, who can assess that for you and if you feel like you can trust them, then even when they're telling you to do things that are really hard, things things can't get better if you just keep doing what you've been doing. You you have to like you keep saying, you you always say it on here, I have to get out of my comfort zone. I think as a parent to you or a loved one, you have to get out of your comfort zone. Sounds like you're talking about a twelfth step, you know, working with other alcoholics, but you're working with other non alcoholics, which is the most important step in all of this. And Diane, thank you so much for taking the time tonight to share this story. I learned a lot, extremely informative. Thank you so much. Thanks, Paul. Recovery Elevator, that is going to wrap up the four-part series called The Other Side. Don't be a stranger. Reach out to us, info at recoveryelevator.com. Let us know what you like about the podcast. Let us know how we can make this podcast better. And if you do like the podcast, I don't think I've ever asked you guys to write a review in iTunes, but go ahead and do so. Recovery Elevator, you took the elevator down. You got to take the stairs back up. Jimmy Graham and Russell Wilson, let's kick some butt this year. We can do this.